This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Gregor Campbell tells us about a baby farmer. Bill Southworth looks at the tough voyage of the first Dunedin settlers. And we then spice it up with a minister who ran away with a choir member. Revelations of baby farming in New Zealand were shocking to those who were unaware of it, especially those who believe that the young, vigorous colony was not susceptible to the social and moral ills of the decadent northern hemisphere. Minnie Dean was, of course, the big baby farming story of the 19th century. Before her was Myra Smith of Northeast Valley Dunedin. Passing notes of the Otago witness was less than impressed in the issue of November the 13th, 1890. Here's Gregor Campbell. A baby farmer named Smith, described as an elderly woman of small stature whose house, or rather den, is somewhere in Northeast Valley, was last week charged before Mr Carew with ill-treating and neglecting five babies found in her possession by the police. The ill-treatment and neglect, as deposed to in court, is too horrible to describe here. Suffice it to say that the children were found fastened up in a room, the only furniture of which was a small box and a strong stench, a stench characterised by one witness as fearful and by another as sickening and unbearable. Here, the helpless little mortals were left to rot in sores and filth. Constable Walker of the Northeast Valley Police Station, who admitted that he had known for years that Mrs Smith trafficked in babies, gave some extraordinary evidence. He had every reason to believe that had he been allowed to search the house, he would have found other children. Apparently, he considered that the finding of five in a perishing condition was enough for the present. There was a burial from Mrs Smith's house about four months ago. Last year, two children had died, and two others in the previous year. After these facts, and others equally damning, had been complacently related to him, the magistrate remarked that if the accused had been tried before the Supreme Court, she could have been sent to jail for two years and fined £200. But as she was brought before him for conviction in a summary way, he was not able to inflict a heavier punishment than three months' imprisonment in each case, either with or without a fine. He thought that each of the cases was one in which he should inflict the full penalty of imprisonment. Accused would be convicted and sentenced to three months' imprisonment with hard labour on each charge, the sentences to be concurrent as there were no previous convictions against her. Mark the beautiful consistency of this. The Supreme Court would send you to jail for two years, Mrs Smith, and find you £200, whereas I can only give you three months on each charge, with or without a fine. I feel it my duty to inflict the full penalty, therefore you are sentenced to three months' imprisonment in each case, sentences to be concurrent, and will say nothing about the fine. Verily, the life and health of babies 
seem to be held cheap in the police court. But this is not all. Something in the story of these nefarious doings, as reported in the police news, seemed, as I read it, dreamily familiar to me. Mrs Smith, female ogre, baby farm, Port Chalmers Road, otherwise Northeast Valley. Surely, I thought, I must have heard of this. Nay, must have written about this years ago. A brief search through the witness file settled the matter. In passing notes of January 17, 1880, nearly 11 years back, I had written as under. Ghastly, ghoulish, enigmatical, altogether horrible in its suggestion, is the following advertisement, which appears at intervals in the star. Mrs Smith's Saturday advertisement. Children adopted. Moderate premium. Mrs Smith, first house down Port Chalmers Road. Ponder this well. We know that more children enter this world than have any legal right to do so, and that children exist whom their mothers and fathers, especially their fathers, don't care to acknowledge and are glad to get rid of. Hence, apparently, the need of such services as are tendered to society by Mrs. Smith. She will disembarrass us of these little strangers who have unlawfully interpolated themselves into the stream of events, adopts them, takes them over for good and all. Why does she do it? Philanthropy, let us hope, and mere goodness of heart, aided by a moderate premium. What happens, and what does she do with them when the moderate premium is exhausted? That beats me quite. The more I dubitate, muse and perpend, the more I can't understand it. Anyhow, the trade is brisk enough to justify a standing Saturday advertisement. Mrs Smith always has vacancies, it seems, and is always asking for more. This, and more to the same effect, I wrote in this column ten years and ten months ago. How many unfortunate bantlings adopted into the elastic family of Mrs Smith, has she promoted to a better world in the interval? I submit this question with a serious consideration of the mole-eyed, leaden-pated police. And I am the very much not leaden-pated Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. People frustrated at the school holiday airport delays might like to consider the travails of the first European settlers to Dunedin. They travelled 25,000 kilometres across great oceans for nearly four months, often battling stormy seas, knowing some of them would not make it alive. This report from Bill Southworth. Before the first two ships, the Philip Lang and the John Wycliffe, set sail for Otago in late 1847 to found a settlement with a Scottish flavour, there had been an ideological tussle as to what the religious nature of this New Zealand company's settlement should be. The fervent religious view of the New Church of Scotland won out, and particularly the narrow religious view of the settler's spiritual leader, the Reverend Thomas Burns. Because of this, Burns would later set the tone for the voyage of the Philip Lang. The ship carried 247 passengers when it set off from Granite near Glasgow. 
and the John Wycliffe set off from Gravesend near London a few days later with 97 passengers on board. Also on board that ship was Captain William Cargill, a retired soldier and banker who had run the colony for the New Zealand Company. The company had difficulties in recruiting enough people to take on the risk of going to the empire's most distant colony. The majority were members of the Free Church of Scotland, but had varying degrees of commitment to that faith. Many, however, were economic refugees, escaping from the poverty and unemployment in the old country. The historian Alexander McLintock has observed, Few, indeed, were burning with holy zeal dedicated to the cause of Christ and his mission. Unquestionably, the great majority of these early immigrants belonged to what Wakefield had called the anxious classes, men and women whose life in the homeland promised little beyond the soulless drudgery of the years, who had little or no capital to invest in any enterprise, and who could contribute nothing beyond their labor and their industry. The majority at least profess their belief in the free church gospel. But there is more than a suspicion that deep down beneath the undercurrents of religious fervor and spiritual exaltation, which ostensibly bore the enterprise along, it was economics rather than religion which induced the tiny band to cross the sea. They often also had skills not suitable for Otago and there were too few farmers and farm labourers amongst them. Most were tradesmen, storekeepers and weavers. At the outset, the Philip Lang experienced miserable weather. As one of the passengers, Jane Bannerman, recalled many years later, Never while I have the power of memory shall I forget that sad, dreary day. I cannot describe the discomfort around us. The poor passengers looked so dispirited and weary, women weeping and little children looking so homesick. There seemed no room for them on the deck. I heard someone say, I think it was the mate, the one half of these people will never cross the line. Even before it cleared the Firth, the ship was hit by the fury of an early winter storm and was forced to shelter off the coast while its shivering passengers gazed upon the snow-capped mountains. Ten days later, they were able to set off again, but the following day, off Dublin Bay, another furious storm hit which forced the ship to seek shelter in Milford Haven. Finally, three weeks after leaving Scotland, they were able to set off into the Atlantic and head for their only landfall, Otago, nearly four months and 25,000 kilometres away. The John Wycliffe also hit bad weather when it left London a few days later. Its seams opened up and its pumps were constantly at work. Throughout the entire voyage, its pumps were kept going morning and night. Close hauled with leaking seams swept by rain and hail and sleet and labouring in heavy seas, the ship struggled southwards until she ran into better latitudes. Once the sun came out, so did the passengers, blinking in the unaccustomed light. Unfortunately for the immigrants in the forecastle, even in southern latitudes, the John Wycliffe was still a wet ship and on the long voyage it was impossible to keep their bedding and possessions dry. Each ship had a surgeon on board, as a spur to them providing efficient service, they were to be paid one pound sterling for each baby bought on the voyage, ten shillings for each passenger landed alive in Otago, plus a gratuity of twenty-five pounds. However, it was subject to a deduction of one pound for each death. Quite an incentive for them to try and do a good job. On the Philip Lang, four children would die during the voyage. 
The Reverend Burns hoped that the isolation of the long sea voyage would create the opportunity to build a God-fearing community ready to populate his ideal religious settlement. He soon realised he would have his work cut out. Even before they left Scotland, five of the immigrants had come back on board drunk and behaving in what was said to be the greatest impropriety. Crew members had also been imprisoned for disobeying orders when no grog ration was issued. Burns adhered strictly to religious observances and twice a day, morning and evening, there were services, with an additional one for Sundays. This touched the hearts of at least some of the faithful, including this passenger, James Adam. It was a fine sight to see the immigrants and sailors gather around the grey-haired divine on a dark and stormy night. His only son, Arthur, a young lad of 16 years, held the old gentleman steady with one hand when the vessel rolled heavily, but in the other he held a bull's-eye lantern that his father might see to read. On such occasions, Burns would remonstrate with immigrants for their shortcomings, such as profane language and non-attendance at services. The Reverend's Bayful Isle also fell on a couple who he suspected were not married. Byrne's wife refused to speak to them, and for two months the couple spent a miserable time after being humiliated and sent to Coventry. Near the coast, the couple finally relented and were married. The man became an implacable enemy of Byrne's once the Neden had been reached. Cargill's ship, John Wycliffe, was the first to arrive at Port Chalmers and entered Otago Harbour under perfect weather conditions. Three weeks later, the Philip Lang pulled alongside... With both ships now in port, Captain Cargill delivered an oration to the new settlers, which he had put together on the voyage. My friends, it is a fact that the eyes of the British Empire, and I may say of Europe and America, are upon us. The rulers of our great country have struck out a system of colonization on liberal and enlightened principles, and, small as we are now, we are the precursors of the first settlement which is to put that system to the test. With the arrival of the second ship, the lovely autumn weather broke, and for eight days a steady, soaking rain set in. It would be followed by an unusually severe winter. I'm grateful to Alexander McClintock for his book, A History of Otago. This is Bill Southworth reporting. In 1928, what was described as a mild sensation gripped the imaginations of the people of Dunedin. A clergyman of a local church, after selling his worldly goods, vanished with a member of the choir. The New Zealand Truth was happy to provide details to a wandering nation, Gregor Campbell. Vanished without leaving trace. Truth's investigation throws light on mystery surrounding remarkable double disappearance. Missing clergyman and married woman from New Zealand Truth's Special Dunedin Representative. Can it be that the morsel of unfortunate coincidence has been carried along on the cruel, biting breath of unfair, uncharitable suspicion rending in its passage two Dunedin homes? That the simultaneous departure of Alfreda Lucia Gale, young wife of an equally youthful customs clerk, and Claude Routon Hassel, duly ordained as a deacon of St Paul's Cathedral Dunedin, from their homes on February 14, has inspired unwarranted and ill-founded conjecture and even positive assertion. If this not be the case, then these two are parties to one of the strangest compacts ever listed in the ledger 
of human psychology. During the course of her seven years of married life, both in England and New Zealand, Mrs. Hassel had been supremely happy with a husband whose whole life had been as an open book, irreproachable, of infinite care for her happiness and a constant inspiration to her. And yet, she says, scarcely more than a month ago, his whole attitude and conception of their life appeared to undergo a swift yet unmistakable transition from a lofty idealism of marriage and its attendant spirituality to a completely changed viewpoint. For some time during 1927, Mrs. Hassel had suffered impaired health, and it was with the object of her regaining full vigour and strength that they decided to sell up their home in Dunedin, that her husband might continue unhampered in his work while she was gaining the advantages offered by a sea trip to the old country. On February 8, their comfortable little home and its intimate effects went under the auctioneer's hammer, and she went to stay with some friends in Northeast Valley while her husband should find lodgings near the centre of the city so as to be in close and constant touch with his work and the needs of his parishioners. To her horror, she was informed a week later that her husband was nowhere to be found, that Mrs Gale had similarly disappeared, and that there was the ghastly, unthinkable suggestion that they had gone together, had planned to leave for Australia. For that is what the representative of New Zealand Truth understood during an interview with Edward Stephen Gale concerning the husband, who, it seems, has gone, never to return. Although it is fairly well established that Mrs Gale has left the country, it is no means certain that Hassel is not still in Wellington. This is the first element of a twin contradiction in theory, and certainly the more charitable. On February 17, the day before Mrs Gale is supposed to have sailed by the Manuka, Hassel wrote his wife from Wellington bidding her not to believe the worst of him. And to that hope, Mrs Hassel is pathetically but hopefully clinging, believing not a shred of the frightful inference with which, she says, Dunedin is encircling the episode. It is by no means established that Hassel has left the country, and certainly no one in Dunedin appears to be fully aware of the true circumstances. His was a charming, if masterful, personality, and it suggested that as his holidays were due in February, he decided upon a certain course of action, which he did not seem fit to disclose to anyone, went north to Wellington, found himself the unwitting victim of circumstance, and endeavoured to extricate himself and one other from a somewhat difficult contretemps, which, in part, at any rate, is borne out by his letter to Mrs Hassel and perhaps negative by a suggestion made to Truth by an old family friend of Mrs Gale and also by her own husband during a conversation. The implied suggestion in these two interviews amounted to this, that on or about January 18, Effie Gale told her husband she could no longer live with him, that she loved Hassel and would go away with him at the end of February. But by far the strangest part of all, and one which throws to confusion the imputation that misconduct has ever occurred between them, is that Mrs Gale and Hassel are said to have sworn that they would neither travel nor live together as man and wife, in the fullest sense of the term, until each is free. Superficially, to some people such a compact as this is beyond understanding or probability. 
but an examination of the life of each party reveals an individual condition which encourages the belief that their arrangement will be carried out until they are free to marry. Mrs Gale is credited with a fine character, a beautiful contralto voice, which she had used with no little earnestness and inspiration for nine years in the cathedral, and a remarkable flair for tennis. For years she and her husband had been co-members of the Moana Tennis Club, on which courts their partnership had developed an unenviable reputation. Hassel's career as a lieutenant in the British Navy during the war was one of eminent distinction, and it appears that his two years of work as a churchman in Dunedin had been equally marked by diligence and zeal. What, then, was the real cause of this remarkable affair? Following their disappearance, and in view of what subtle inference on the public part, and vague reference to the occurrence by the two daily papers, had achieved, Truth approached Gale and suggested to him that a true revelation of the facts as he knew them would be much preferable to the fragments of idle gossip at present being disseminated. To which he agreed. Gale said, On or about January 18, my wife told me she could no longer live with me and that she and Hassel intended to leave the city by the end of February. On the following day, she left the house, taking her personal belongings with her. I pointed out to her the hazardous and foolish step she intended to take, but I could not sway her from her conviction. Later, I learned that they proposed to leave New Zealand by the Manuka, and so on February 15, I rang the house at which she had been staying, only to be informed of her having left the house the previous day. No, I have no reason to believe that she was at any time guilty of any immoral relationship with Hassel, but I think she must have been deceiving me for some time. A friend of mine saw Mrs Gale leave by the Manuka. There could be no mistake, as he was speaking to her on the boat and just managed to get ashore as the gangway was removed from the ship's side. We had been married only three years. Contrary to vicious rumour, it is believed that no one had any real suspicion that the pair had been guilty of clandestine relationship, but rather that extended propinquity, their close association in many activities, meetings, and all the little functions generally encountered among churchgoers, perhaps accounted for and culminated in their sudden impulse to brave the world, its criticism, and its cant. That is to say, if the covenant suggested by Alfie Gale's old family friend is the correct explanation of their unexpected exit from Dunedin. So many are eager to prejudge. Will sceptics and scandal be confounded by the reappearance of Hassel, bearing with him a positive and reasonable explanation? Or have they burned their boats? If the latter proves the fact, then Mrs Hassel, already a stricken woman, will make her sad return to the land of her birth, where, among the flowers and environment of her English home, she may perhaps yet find surcease and lasting happiness. Neither Reverend Hassel's richly toned and clearly articulated voice, nor Mrs Gale's rich contralto, were heard at the divorce proceedings instituted by Mr Gale after the petition was served on them at 442 Auburn Road, Hawthorne, Melbourne. The divorce was granted. And I am hopefully the richly toned 
and clearly articulated Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand check out visitheritage.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.